In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. So Teen Grace, we're in ordinary time, and once again, ordinary time is all about what? Exactly, and I want to say that because this is, this is the last weekend when I can ask you that question. Because, of course, next week we move into Lent. But for now, we want to really focus on ordinary time. We want to focus on our discipleship. Now, first, of course, we look at our own personal discipleship. Where are we in our relationship with the Lord? But also, we look at our discipleship as a community, as a church. Where are we as a community in our relationship with the Lord? And this discernment has led the bishops of our country to call us to a national Eucharistic revival. Since Pew Research has indicated that 70% of our own do not believe in the Lord's true presence. So for the last two and a half years, we've been in this revival. Here at Our Lady Grace, we've taken this call very seriously. In fact, we've picked up, picked up the mantle, and during ordinary time, we've been walking through a homily series on the parts of the Mass and the portions of the Catechism of the Catholic Church on the Eucharist. Now, truth be told, time has, very, has moved very quickly. In fact, for a while there, I kept saying a year and a half, a year and a half, and I looked, I thought, oh, it's been two years. Oh, wait, wait, it's been two and a half years, right? So time's been moving. But as I've looked at the Catechism of the Catholic Church and I've looked at the Mass, I've been amazed at how much we have covered. Do you realize, Teen Grace, how much we have learned or relearned over the past two and a half years? We've allowed the Church to teach us what it means that God dwells with us, that he wants to be with us as his people. So today we actually conclude our homily series of two and a half years. Last week we concluded our walk through the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Today we're going to conclude our walk through the parts of the Mass. But some people said, well, wait a minute, Father. If we're finishing this Sunday, then there's still more parts of the Mass. What are we going to do? And I'm like, forget it. No, <laughs> no, no. No, I was like, well, maybe next year for Lent or, at, or Easter season, we'll pick back up, at least finish the Roman canon. And then if there's an interest, we can finish the rest of the Mass. So we're going to come back to it. We're not going to just stop and halfway through the Mass and then not come back. But for at least now, we are concluding our series. And I want us to rejoice in the Lord at what we've been able to learn these past two and a half years. But for now, we're going to go back to the parts of the Mass. As a reminder, just to kind of get our minds in focus, let me ask you, Team Grace, how many times did Jesus sacrifice himself? Once. Only once. 2,000 years ago on Mount Calvary, the Lord Jesus, the eternal Son of God, offered himself in sacrifice for our salvation. That one sacrifice 2,000 years ago is represented by the power of the Holy Spirit at our altar during the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass. So what the Lord did 2,000 years ago, we get to experience here at our altar. Let me ask you, to whom is the sacrifice offered? God the Father, exactly. And that just helps us to focus, oh, this is all directed to God the Father. We know the sacrifice is offered through, with, and in Jesus Christ. That we are participating in this sacrifice that the Lord is offering to the Father. Now, as baptized Christians, are we able to be a part of the sacrifice? Absolutely. In fact, we should be actively and consciously a part of the sacrifice. As the Lord offers himself to the Father, we should unite ourselves with him. So let me ask you this, Team Grace. Can an unbaptized person participate in the sacrifice? No, they don't have the spiritual identity. And that's not elitism, because we want every man and every woman to be baptized. The Lord told us, go teach all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So anyone can be baptized. And only those who are baptized, who are made literally members of the body of Christ, the very body that's being offered to the Father, only they can participate in the sacrifice. All right, so let's ask about the Mass itself. How many main parts are there of the Mass? 
four. And what's the first part? And what's the second part? Great. The third part? And the fourth part? Exactly. So there are four parts to the Mass. What's the fourth part again? Okay, good. Now here at Our Lady of Grace, we know that there are four parts of the Mass. And we know what that fourth part of the Mass looks like, don't we? Because every once in a while we get guests who come, and they like to leave after the Liturgy of the Eucharist. So it's been a couple of years that, before they, that they have seen the fourth part of the Mass, right? So we know because we talk about it. But there are a lot of priests, they don't talk about it. They're, they're just uh, spiritual fathers. They're not teaching their faithful. They're not telling them, hey, you need to stay for the whole sacrifice. We know that it is greatly offensive to the whole sacrifice of the Mass to leave early. We stay for all four parts of the Mass. Do we stay for the concluding rites? And we know that. Perhaps some of our guests who are with us, now they know that, right? That we do not leave Mass early. As I talk about how, how important and sacred the Mass is, I want, also want to talk about our acts of devotion and reverence, which we highlight here at Our Lady of Grace. And I'll tell you, I've shared this with you, with the, shared this with you before, I don't like to be the pastor who has to keep talking about these things. Don't talk in church, dress appropriately, make sure that you show proper reverence, and so on. But I realize that's just part of my responsibility. But there are a lot of priests who won't do that. So you go into churches and it sounds like a train station, right? You go into some churches, you're not sure, am I at a house of worship or am I at the beach, right? You see some houses of worship where people blatantly violate modesty and cause the chastity. So we see that. And in large part that happens because the spiritual father is sleeping at the wheel. He's not doing the hard part of his responsibility. Here at Our Lady Grace, I try to address that. We address that. Last night, some older parishioners came up to me. They said, oh, Father, uh-oh. I said, what? They said, before Mass, we had this couple who was sitting in front of us. I'm like, yeah. So we think they were guests, okay? They said, Father, they were just talking the whole time. Like, wow. In church. Oh, yeah. Chat, 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 chat. And they said, finally, we just leaned over and said, excuse me. We have sacred silence in the church. Can you please stop talking? So the woman looked at them and said, I didn't know. <laughs> okay, we'll take that at face value. I didn't know. And apparently the guy got so upset, he looked at them and said, I'm not going to stay in a church that won't let me talk. And they left. So the parishioners came up to me because they felt bad about it. They're like, Father, we're so sorry. I said, don't be. I said, we created a culture here at Our Lady of Grace. We know what's expected of us. And the way that they recounted it, it was very respectful and kind. Because to speak in the house of God while people are trying to pray and to speak in the presence of our king is disrespectful. We don't do that as Catholics. We don't distract fellow worshipers. We don't distract ourselves. We take nothing away from the majesty or the presence of God. And we understand that. At least we're supposed to. So we understand the sacred of the Mass. How many parts are there of the Mass again? Four. Exactly, and we stay for all four. All right, well, let's go to the third part of the Mass, the Liturgy of the Eucharist. We're back at the Roman Canon. That's the first Eucharistic prayer. Are there other Eucharistic prayers? Yes. Exactly, and they have their place. But Mother Church favors the first Eucharistic prayer. It's the most ancient, the most beautiful. So if you'd like to join me in your credo missiles, you can go to page 18. So we finished page 17. We're moving to the very top of page 18. You'll recall that so far in the Roman canon, we just finished that whole first group of holy ones. So we talked about Our Lady and St. Joseph. We spoke about the apostles. Then we talked about those martyrs, some of whom were the early popes and other holy men who've died for our faith. And wasn't that helpful? Just to be able to understand, oh, Chrysogenes. 
okay, now I know who he is, right? A lay catechist, taught the faith, died for our faith, okay. And oh, John and, 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 and excuse me, uh, John and Paul, it's like, oh, okay, those aren't the apostles in this context. Those were two brothers who were military officers who died for our faith. Just having some of that bio, that background can be helpful to us, especially as we're invoking their intercession every week. All right, so let's go again to the top of page 18. We just finished that whole first group of holy ones, and then we say, and all your saints. Now, what's interesting is you'll notice that whenever Mother Church prays, she'll always pray for a specific group or intention, and then she broadens it. Mother Church is always worried about all her children. So she mentions all these specific saints and then says, and all your saints. So Mother Church is praying for the sick, for these people who are sick, and for all the sick. Mother Church will always generalize after a particular. Because again, she's worried about all the children of God, that everyone be prayed for and interceded for. So here, right after this group, this listing, this group of holy ones, Mother Church says, and all the saints. Now, it's important for us to realize that these saints are not just the canonized saints. Remember, everyone in heaven is a saint. These are also the people in our family that are very dear to us, who maybe are only known to our family. So all the saints, the canonized saints, but also the saints of our family. Some time ago, a bishop asked Rome, they said, the, the bishop asked, can we replace the list of these early martyrs with more contemporary saints? So for example, could we inter, you know, put, put in and, and ask the intercession of you know, Faustine of the Divine Mercy and Teresa of Calcutta and Dimphna and St. Catherine Drexel and Maximilian Kolbe and John Paul II and Andrew Kim and Padre Pio, could we put these saints in rather than these other saints? And Rome thought about it and came back and said, no, no, we want to keep the ancient martyrs because these were the ones who were dear to our forebears. But Rome said, encourage the faithful that during this part of the Roman canon and all your saints, that at that point in your own heart, you think of the saints who are dear to you, the canonized saints, your confirmation saint, your various patron saints, and then also, of course, the saints within your own family. So we have the first grouping and we say, and all your saints. We ask that through their merits and prayers. So we've talked a lot about the prayers of the saints here at Our Lady Grace. We know that prayer is different from worship. Worship is given to God alone. Worship always involves sacrifice. Prayers are conversations. So we ask one another to pray for each other. So I ask you to pray for me. You ask me to pray for you. That doesn't end in death. So we ask our holy ones, older brothers and sisters, the friends of God, we ask them to pray for us. So we've talked a lot about the prayers of the saints. But look here, the Roman canon says, their merits and prayers. What, what does that mean? Well, friends, every time we do something that the Lord has asked of us, we receive a merit. So, for example, if the Lord says, serve the poor, I serve the poor, I receive merits. Now, by myself, I can't get those. And I don't earn them. The Lord provides the opportunity within his covenant in order for merits and graces to be received. If I do what the Lord asks, then the Lord allows me to receive these merits and graces. Well, the holy ones, they have so many merits, their fasting, their works of mercy, their acts of sacrifice, all that they have done, their martyrdoms, all that they have done, all these merits, Mother Church spiritually holds. In theology, we call them, we call it the treasury of merits. Mother Church has all those. And the church allows us, the, church, the Lord Jesus allows the church to then give them to us as needed. These merits can help us. So those of us who are still working out our salvation, we receive merits from the church. 
And when those merits are given to us, what are those called? Those are indulgences. That's what an indulgence is. So Mother Church is taking the merits of our older brothers and sisters and giving them to us in order to help us as we try to fight the good fight. So every time we receive an indulgence, it's just an older brother or sister who's helping us to work out our salvation. And here the Roman canon references that. We ask through their merits and prayers, in all things, we may be defended by your protecting help. Defended and protected. Right? What, what, what are we asking God to defend and protect us from? Well, ultimately, it's sin. Sin, darkness, brokenness, doubt, compromise. We're asking God through all the merits of the saints and all the prayers of the saints, defend us and protect us. Help us to remain faithful, to persevere, to stay on the most excellent way of love. Okay, now after that, you have to skip some prayers. You'll see that there are some prayers for liturgical uh, feasts and high, high, uh, liturgical seasons and feast days. So you skip through all those. Then you'll see the prayer picks back up. Therefore, Lord, we pray. All right, for this part of the Eucharistic prayer, I have to explain something from the Old Testament. And I want you to really try to understand this. Our first reading we heard from the book of Leviticus. Leviticus is like the priest handbook of the Old Testament. It can be some dry reading sometimes. Okay, okay. But the whole book of Leviticus is designed around the Feast of Atonement. Everything points to the Feast of Atonement and everything flows from it. So the Feast of Atonement is right there in the center. And what happened on the Feast of Atonement? Well, that's when God basically cleaned house. So the high priest had to take two goats. The first goat, he had to confess his sins and the sins of the priest on that. And then that goat was sacrificed. And then the second goat, he had to confess all the sins of the people on the second goat. And then that goat was led out into the desert. And that goat was called the scapegoat. That's where the term comes from. So on the Feast of Atonement, God was purifying the priesthood, purifying the, the, the tabernacle, purifying his people. He was getting sent out. So the Feast of Atonement was very prominent. But notice that image of laying hands on the goat to confess sin. That's very important because the Roman canon from the church in Rome was written by the Christians of the first few centuries of our faith. And Rome was what we called a mixed community. It means it had Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. Now, the Jewish Christians were the foundation of the early church because they had the law of Moses and the prophecies. But eventually, the Gentile Christians outnumbered them. So in some places, you just had Gentile Christian communities. Sometimes you had Jewish Christian communities. And then you had mixed communities, like in Rome, where you had both Jew, Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. I say that because the Roman canon is heavily influenced by the Old Testament because of the influence of the Jewish Christians in the church in Rome. That helps us. Okay, we have the Feast of Atonement, and they want the Feast of Atonement to be a part of the Roman canon. All right, we're going to hold that in the back of our minds for now. Let's go back to the Eucharistic prayer. Therefore, Lord, we pray, graciously accept this oblation of our service. What is grace? Unmerited divine favor. Graciously accept this oblation of our service. We're saying to God, please accept this. We're offering this. We're offering ourselves. We know the Lord's sacrifice is perfect. It's complete. This, the Lord's sacrifice doesn't have to be made acceptable. It's perfect. We have to be made acceptable. We're a part of this sacrifice. We're not offering a good sacrifice. It's incomplete. It's imperfect. We're broken. And we're coming. We're saying, God, graciously accept this oblation. We know it's supposed to be more. We know it's supposed to be better. 
but graciously accept this oblation. And notice oblation, not simply sacrifice. What's an oblation? That's an outpouring. So we're coming to the Sunday Eucharistic sacrifice. We're saying, Lord, I have given my all this past week. I forgave people. I selflessly served. I studied sacred doctrine. I prayed. I died to myself. I exercised virtue. I have poured myself out for you. Graciously accept this oblation. Because even though all these things that I have done, it's still imperfect. Please accept this oblation. Notice how many times during the Eucharistic sacrifice we will ask God to accept or to make acceptable what we are offering. To make us acceptable. We who are sinners, we who at times rebel against him. So we say graciously accept this oblation of our service. Now what's interesting is as baptized Christians, when we participate in Eucharistic sacrifice, we're a part of this. Even if we're not paying attention, we're a part of this. This is our prayer. And I sometimes wonder how many Christians this prayer is a part of that have no oblation. How many people come to Sunday Mass and they don't really have an oblation? They really haven't done anything for the Lord. They just kind of live for themselves, did what they wanted, go with the flow. So you can imagine as this is being offered, graciously accept this oblation of our service, God scratching his head and saying, what oblation? What service? You have, you're offering nothing. So you have to be very careful. If we come to God and we have nothing, we ask him to accept what we know we're not offering, that is what's called irreligion. That is actually a mockery of God. You're mocking God in his very house, before his very altar. And that is very grave and very severe. So when we come, we have to make sure that we are offering a true oblation, that we have something that we are bringing before the Lord. Notice the next part. And that of your whole family, so again, Mother Church broadens. And then she says, order our days in your peace. Now, it's interesting. Here we can read this and think, okay, yeah, peace, that's good. Peace is the absence of tension, right? No. In the scriptures, peace is the tranquility of order. Peace means that we are fulfilling our sacred duties. For example, if parents are holding the line on a curfew, and their teenager has come in late, and the teenager's throwing a fit. I hate you. I can't believe this. You're trying to control me. And they're fighting, and they're yelling, and they're screaming. Everybody's upset. Biblically, that's peace. <laughs> that's peace. Because the parents are fulfilling their duties, and they're teaching virtue to their children, and they're allowing their children to understand that they are part of a community, and that the world doesn't revolve around them. That's very important. That's peace. What's the opposite? Parents who do not enforce curfew tell the children, do whatever you want. It's okay. You can live however you prefer. Everyone might be getting along. There's a false peace, but biblically there's no peace because the parents have failed in their duties of teaching virtue to their children. So we ask God, order our days according to your peace. And we know sometimes that means there's going to be tension means help us to fulfill our duties, to do what you have asked, to be faithful. And then it says, the Roman canon uh, continues, and command that we be delivered from eternal damnation. Who that always rattles the cage, doesn't it? Nothing like a good reference of hell to get things moving, huh? We have to remember, dear friends, hell is real. People go there and it's forever. 
It's a place devoid of love in the absence and is completely absent of God's presence. It's absolutely horrific. In fact, I've said it before, it's worth repeating, that the Lord spoke more about hell than he did about heaven. He spoke more graphically about hell than he did about heaven. Why? Because he knew how horrible a place it was and he did not want us to go there. In fact, he has come to us, the eternal son of God, in order to ransom us from hell, for the kingdom of sin and death. Here we ask God, command that we be delivered. I think it's an interesting verb there, delivered. It makes it sound like we're already on our way there, doesn't it? Right? Deliver us, right? Spare us, save us from eternal damnation. And again, we just have to realize that is a real option. At the end of this life, there's only one of two locations. It's with God or away from God forever. And here we ask God, command, make sure we don't go there. And then the church says, and count it among the flock of those you have chosen. How do we get chosen? Well, we obey God. We love him. We follow his path. We die to ourselves. We cooperate with grace. And then in that way, we become more and more transformed by grace. And then God the Father says, okay, yes, I choose you. Come. Notice here where it says, and count it among the flock. This is the only reference to flock or shepherding in the Roman canon. And it helps us to prepare for the next part of the Roman canon. This is where we're going to need the Feast of Atonement. Okay, you're going to have to skip another prayer in your missal, and you have to go to the part where it says, Be pleased, O God. And this is where, this is where we'll conclude today. Be pleased, O God. So this part is called the epiclesis. You always know when Mother Church is serious because she retains the Hebrew or the Greek, right? Have you ever wondered why we've never translated amen or hallelujah? Mother Church is teaching us. Too sacred to translate. We have to say it in the Hebrew. When she retains something in the Greek, it's because it's too sacred. We can't translate it. So epiclesis is one of those terms. Epiclesis. Can you say that? Epiclesis. All it means is the calling down. And who's being called down? The Holy Spirit, exactly. So this is the epiclesis, so we're calling down the Holy Spirit. Powerful. But here's the thing is we know that in the Roman church, the Holy Spirit was kind of neglected. Now we're fixing that. But there's a reason why as Western Christians you say, I don't, I don't really know that much about the Holy Spirit. Well, because regrettably in our theological tradition, he's never really been emphasized. Now in the Eastern church, that's all they talk about is the Holy Spirit, right? So we're trying to fix that. So in the Roman canon, while there's an epiclesis, so the priest is literally extending his hands, calling down the Holy Spirit. The server rings the bell. Now the bells in our tradition mean signs of joy. So the bell's being rung because we're happy because the Holy Spirit's coming, right? But there's something else going on here. Because remember that influence of Jewish Christianity and the Feast of Atonement? We think that during this part of the Roman canon, the Christians of Rome saw that this was the fulfillment of the, of the Feast of, of Atonement because the priest was extending his hands and placing upon the Lord the sins of the community. And that fulfills the atonement. So just as these were done for the goats, so it will be done here in fulfillment. So that is profoundly moving if you think about that as the epiclesis is being offered, the sins are being placed upon, uh, upon the Lord Jesus, this bread and wine, which right after the epiclesis becomes the body and blood of Jesus Christ, the Lord taking on our sin. Not to tell you, when I first studied that in theology, I was shockingly and surprisingly very moved by that. In fact, I just remember being moved to tears. I think in large part because 
we can talk about the Lord taking on our sins, but it always just kind of floats around in the spirit, right? But once you begin to realize, like, tangibly, practically, you actually get to see it. Like, as the priest actually extends his hands, like, that's it. Like, my sin, my offense, my betrayal, my rebellion is being placed upon the Lord at this time. And then the bread and wine transubstantiate, and the Lord takes and accepts my sin. And by doing that, he provides me the opportunity of salvation. So it's very moving. If you allow yourself to understand that, it can even move to a deeper understanding of the holy sacrifice. But let's look at what we're praying. Be pleased, O God, we pray. My goodness, doesn't that sound like someone's just like prostrate and just like profoundly just like complete in, in, in a humble state, right? Be pleased, O God, we pray. To bless, acknowledge, and approve this offering in every respect. The Lord is perfect. His sacrifice is perfect. We're not talking about the Lord Jesus. Friends, we're talking about ourselves. We come before God with empty hands, an incomplete oblation. And we're asking God, be pleased, please, bless, acknowledge, and approve this offering. We have to let our hearts be moved by that. So oftentimes what happens is these prayers become so mechanical we can forget what's even being offered. This is a profound cry of a human heart, desiring, pining, yearning for redemption. We have to let ourselves and our hearts feel that. And as the prayers are being offered, we have to unite our heart to the heart of the Lord and make sure that we ourselves are saying, yes, please, bless, acknowledge, approve. Because I know what I am. I know the brokenness and the fallenness and the sinfulness. But I know your love. I know your mercy. Be pleased to bless, acknowledge, and approve this offering. And then it says, in every respect. Why, why that part, in every respect? Well, we put that there, dear friends, because what happens with sin is fr sin just fragments us. Right? And we're just all over the place. That's what sin does. It divides us, right? Divides us within the community, divides us within ourselves. We have these little fragments. Huh? And the danger when you have fragments in your soul is it's easy to fall into idolatry. I love the Lord. He's wonderful. He's wonderful. Except I'm not giving him a tithe. I'm not going to give 10%. No way. It's my money. Ah, idolatry. Okay. Oh, no, I love the Lord, I love the Lord, I love the Lord, but I'm not going to give mercy to that person. No, I hate that person. I wish just vengeance upon that person. Whoa, idolatry. I love the Lord, I love the Lord, I love the Lord, but the church's teachings on sexuality and contraception, way off. No way. It's 1.5 kids for us, okay? Idolatry. You see what happens when we're fragmented? We become easy prey to idolatry. But we ask God to bless to acknowledge and to approve the offering and to bring it in every respect, to bring it together by his grace. Because when we are holistic, when we are holy, there is no room for idolatry. There's only room for an oblation to offer ourselves to the Lord. Look, look further. Make it spiritual and acceptable. Spiritual. Raise it up. Lift it up, Lord. What's being offered to you, bring it to the heights of your glory. Make it spiritual and acceptable. Again, the cry, the petition, make this acceptable. Because I know who I am and where I stand. Make this acceptable. So that it may become for us 
the body and blood of your most beloved Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, dear friends, at this point we are referring to that the bread and the wine become the body and blood of Christ. There's a miracle, there's a transubstantiation happening here at the altar. The Holy Spirit is working. Yes, bread and wine, mere bread and wine, become the beloved Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. But do you think that miracle only happens at the altar? Does that miracle only happen at the altar? No, dear friends, because we're a part of this sacrifice. So when we pray so that it may become for us the body and blood of your most beloved Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, what we're asking is that the same miracle that's being done at this altar be done in our hearts, that there be a transubstantiation within our hearts. So I seek vengeance and I want to be a person of hatred. Transubstantiation, I become a person of mercy and kindness. I don't want to serve other people. I'm lazy. I'm, I'm, I'm self-centered. Transubstantiation, I want to selflessly serve those around me. I'm greedy. I want to hold on to my money. Transubstantiation, I learn generosity. The same miracle that happens here at the altar is to be happening in the hearts of all the baptized so that we ourselves also become reflections of the most beloved Son, Jesus Christ. And we can begin to see our brokenness and our fallenness coming together in a powerful, beautiful harmony, in a spirit of peace and being reflecting a reflection of Jesus Christ himself. That's what can happen during the Catholic Mass. That's what can happen during the Epiclesis if you allow it. Dear friends, let me help you that on the day of judgment, God the Father will look upon us and if he looks at us and he sees his son in us, he will welcome us into his home. If God the Father looks at us and he does not see his son, but he sees not, nothing but someone who has rebelled against him, an enemy to him, someone who has never trusted him, he will cast us from his house. We have to understand that the way in which we look like the Lord Jesus is we allow for that transubstantiation to happen in our souls. We cooperate with grace. We allow ourselves to be transformed, becoming more and more into the likeness of Jesus Christ. That's what's meant when we say we work out our salvation in Jesus Christ. We die to ourselves. We do not live for ourselves. We seek to live for the Lord Jesus. And we seek to follow the most excellent way of love. That's the path of salvation, dear friends. And that's where we have to conclude in the Roman canon. Well, we're going to come back in a couple of years, right? So we'll come back. Right? <laughs> and don't worry, there'll be a quiz when we come back, right? But for now, dear friends, I want you to realize what we have been able to learn as a parish family for these last two and a half years, and I want you to use that formation as an opportunity to deepen in your own Eucharistic faith and Eucharistic devotion, to be just completely overwhelmed and fear filled with awe that God desires to be with us, that he has pitched his tent to be with us, that he wants to accompany each one of us in the joys and the sorrows of life. He wants to be with us. That is the mystery and the gift of the Lord's true presence in the Eucharist.